0: psychology in seattle so bob welcome to the podcast i thought we Thank would you. Uh, read some emails that are to the two of us and we would answer them what do you say i say yes this is the psychology in seattle podcast i'm your host dr kirk honda i'm a therapist and a professor at antioch university who are you bob
1: I am a therapist here in practice in Seattle and a friend of yours from graduate school a hundred
0: years ago. So that was before you had gray hair. <laughs> I actually have some gray hair. You can count them, right? I think so. Yeah. But they're coming in
1: fast. Yeah. And that's what you say. Uh, if you had to estimate my head, what percent is gray at this point? 10 uh, percent. Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah. Colleen says it's 25%.
0: Oh, well. Plus, I have a bald spot. Have you seen my bald spot? I mean, she's shorter than you, and so most of your gray hairs are on the bottom edge of your head. <laughs> so maybe, because, like, I can see the top of your head. Okay. And that's mostly not gray. Yeah. But was was your hair darker in general when you were younger? Or has it always been that kind of no, in-between color? No, I think it was darker. Like, yeah. I see photos. I think it was darker. Yeah. Because in my head, you had dark Brown hair. Dark brown hair, yeah, yeah. yeah. But now, it, maybe she's thinking that it's like, well, your hair's not really dark brown anymore. It's kind of, it's kind of not in between or something. Yeah. It's, it's, what color would you say your hair is? I'd say it's brown, but now it's like because I have brown hair.
1: Yeah, you're dark, dark brown hair. You get the good dark brown hair. I got some yeah. sort of
0: dishwater brown, some in between brown or something. You know, I always hated it. I don't when, like committing Kirk <laughs> when people called my hair black. Oh, really? Because it's not black. Does it look black to you? Yeah, it looks black to me. Really? Yeah. Look at look at my microphone. It that's black. It's pretty close.
1: Is it? Yeah, to me. Yeah. I mean, you know, your shirt's black too, but it's not the same as your microphone. So you know, I think black comes in you know some different flavors. Uh, well, I like your hair. I always like black hair,
0: but it's not black. Huh? It's brown. If you saw my hair next to someone with black hair, you'd be like, "Oh, that's black hair, huh. Kirk." You do not. Have, you have very as you say very very dark brown very dark hair brown hair okay but it's it's not black why don't I have a frame you know i got this is what i got i mean i guess people just have different sort of metrics for that which is yeah. which is fine but in my world i'm not full asian and i don't have black hair yeah full asians have black hair yeah, that's true when you see their hair it's like it's black mm-hmm. there's no mistaking that person's hair is black my hair is not, I'm not full Asian Yeah. and I've never had the black hair. And yeah. so when people called my, my hair, was black, blonde, right? Mom was blonde. Yeah. yeah. And so for people to say my hair is black, I was just like, no, it's not black, hmm. but I always thought it was some kind of racist thing. It's uh-huh. just like, well, you look Asian, And so I associate that with having black hair and it's hmm. just like, um, so I don't know. It always kind of gets my hackles up. No, yeah. my, my hackles are up that you're calling my hair. Similar. You're getting gray though, so there's that. (laughs) Uh, All right, anonymous patron, long email here, so uh, I think it's worth getting into. Okay. Do you have any advice on how to get over bitterness and resentment towards parents and how life turned out for me? Hmm. I find I find myself now a 34 years old male. And it feels like my whole life has just been an endless lonely struggle with anxiety and depression. I'm trying to get out of it, but it feels like no matter what I do, I'm unable to get anywhere. Anyone around, Everyone around me keeps uh, keep on happily living their lives. They see friends, they get into relationships, they get married, they have kids, they buy houses, they have conversations about sports and politics and movies, they travel and go on vacations. While while I'm just here watching day by day of my life go down the drain, seemingly no matter what I try to do to change that. I've always been aware of that, but the recent months I've started to become more and more aware of a growing resentment and bitterness, first and foremost towards my parents, particularly my father. It's like I have this growing hatred inside me towards everyone who's happy and who has what I want but I'm more and more afraid I will never get to experience it.
1: Mm.
0: And that again reminds me of my childhood and how I ended up in this situation, feeling my bitterness and resentment towards my family. I get depressed, more bitter, a cycle feeding itself. It's gotten to the point where I dread simply going outside because it's sunny outside and the weather is good. Reminding me of everyone who's at the beach with their friends because I know there will be a happy couple on the bus reminding me of my loneliness and the fact that I'm 34 and still have never been in a relationship. It's like everyone and everything happy and normal is taunting me in the world. I don't have anything to do with the incel group. So Bob, do you, do you remember me talking about incels? I do. Yeah. So for those who don't know, incels are the involuntary celibate people they are upset that they are made to be celibate by society or by women or something. That's, that's how they see it. Yeah, yeah. So I don't have anything to do with the incel group, but technically I am one. And I hate when people make fun of them because I don't think they get how painful it actually is.
1: Okay. Yeah. Right.
0: I get more and more how they, through loneliness and hopelessness, end up hating society. And I both hate and fear that I'm seemingly sliding down the same track. I feel like I want to scream at the world, at my parents, at my family. But even if that was a good idea, which it probably isn't, I don't even know how to do that. I want to cry, I want to scream, but I don't know how to do either. It's like I have this angry kid in me that just gets angrier and angrier but I can't let it out because I'm 34 years old and a 34-year-old man can't just scream aimlessly at parents, at their parents or lay down in the middle of the road screaming just to get someone to notice. At 34 years old, it's also possibly not the best idea to start acting out with drugs or drinking or otherwise mess up my life even more just to get some sort of outlet, which will, which will take even more years to clean up after. What do I do? How do I stop this cycle? Any advice other than quote unquote go to therapy uh which i already am good any particular ways one should be working in therapy what should i focus on in therapy bob what do you think
1: um i'm wondering if that person wants us to care about his his there yeah i think his his pain and i'm wondering if at the same time um receiving care or being open to receiving care scares the hell out of him. You know, I hear the anger, I get it, I hear all the bitterness, and I, yeah, I get it, but I sort of think it's, it's just, that's the surface, that's the superficial, like this guy's in a lot of pain, and I wonder if he wants his therapist, or even himself, to pay attention to and care about it, and I suspect that such an imitation would frighten him, but it's
0: worthwhile. So why would it frighten him, because... Of course, logically, everyone wants to be cared about and to be heard. What, yeah. what, what's going on there? Well, you know,
1: um, um, oh, why would it frighten him? I, that's my sense. My sense is that, that um, it's safer to be pissed off than it is to be open and vulnerable. Maybe he's been fucked over by um, people that are supposed to love and care about him, and so, you know, he's got a natural guard at the gate, so to speak. Um, um, maybe it's something like that. Maybe maybe it's sort of like if I had a broken arm and I'm holding it like this and I'm just like cautious about it. I don't want you coming near me because you, you might hurt me more. You know, maybe it's something like that. I don't know. But um, I don't know. When I, when I hear this, when I hear about that bitterness, I sort of think, okay, you're 34, you're not quite halfway. Let's not waste it. You know, you got a shot because you're only 34. Yeah. And I wonder if... He wants to, if he wants his therapist to, if he wants you and me to care about his pain.
0: Yeah. I mean, he does, but you're saying he might worry about uh, uh, asking or or, yeah. or That's what I'm being saying. overt about the want for caring from other people. Yeah. Like,
1: maybe the safe place is to talk about being angry. Mm. That's what I think. I don't know. What do you think?
0: It's a tough situation. Yeah to be 34 and all the time wanting an intimate relationship with a partner, a romantic partner, sexual partner, and never having had a relationship yet. Probably he's tried. Probably. He's done a lot of things, and um, it, it hasn't worked for whatever reason, and he's worried that it will never happen. Worried. And he's angry at his Family and particularly his father for damaging his personality and maybe causing his personality to have issues. He's not saying this specifically, but I think that's the implication. The implication is that his um, the damage that his dad did made it so that he has a hard time dealing with emotions or dealing with other people, and that's perpetuated the loneliness. And I talk about this all the time that the great tragedy to mistreatment and abuse is that it lasts the rest of your life. It's not just the terror and the horribleness that you go through at the time, which not everyone goes through. And so at the age of five, when you're going through some horrible, it, it just seems like the universe should somehow balance the scales. And so when you're 25, it seems like your life should be beautiful and wonderful and emotionally stable and everything. But that's not what happens. You're you're treated like crap when you're five and that uh the, the lessons learned and the damage that's done lasts the rest of your life. And it's just so unfair that yeah. someone could mistreat you when you're zero to six and that mistreatment just is a monkey on your back for the rest of your life. It it's it's a tragedy. Yeah. And so you know, it makes me really sad for you, patron, in, yeah. in that way. And I appreciate you reaching out. That's a good sign. Yeah, uh, uh, you're you want to know what to do, and you're you're expressing your feelings. You want to scream. You want to lay in the middle of the road for, for people to hear you. I what the the themes that I'm hearing in your writing here is that you have a lot of um, emotion. I would, I would call it normal emotion. I don't think you're calling it normal emotion. But mm-hmm. you have a lot of emotion, and you feel like no one hears you. You have a lot of emotion, you have a lot of needs, and you feel like no one cares. You have this urge to lay in the middle of the street and scream and uh, to quote-unquote just to, just to get someone to notice. So it appears that you don't feel like people notice you. You feel like you have to become dysfunctional or antisocial somehow or against norms just to be heard, just to be noticed. Mm. And That's... I'm guessing that was a theme developed early in life. And the, again, the tragedy of that. So if you're treated in a way that makes you feel like you don't matter, if you're treated in a way in which that gives you a lesson that people don't notice you, when you become an adult you have a complex that causes through various different mechanisms, which I I won't go into, but various possible mechanisms that can actually produce other people to not notice you. Yeah. Right. Can produce other people to ignore you Mm -hmm. and discount you. Yeah. And, and the discounting and the unnoticing is their fault, but you set up a situation that made it very easy for them to do that. And, so not only is the tragedy that you have this monkey on your back, but you become the monkey. <laughs> uh, and, and that's just a huge tragedy. Now I don't know you patron. Mm-hmm. I don't know your situation. Maybe you've had a, a life of where you've been really healthy and you just had really bad luck or something, but yeah, there's a lot of people like that and there's a lot of narratives. One narrative is the incel narrative, which is that, it's feminism's fault. It's society's fault. It's um, liberals' fault. It's the fault of biology because that's the, that's so the liber- the incels blame a lot of kind of weird things that don't really match up. One thing they they blame feminism. They blame mm-hmm. that women were are taught lessons around being powerful and um, talking back, and that you know blah blah blah. But the other thing that they'll blame is mm-hmm. biology. They'll say that women were uh, are biologically disposed to be very picky about their egg distribution because they only get one egg a, a month. Have you heard of this evolutionary psychology argument? Yeah, I think I've heard you talk about this theory or this yeah. argument. Yeah, it's yeah. a hypothesis that a lot of people in evolutionary psychology and society believe it, it doesn't actually hold water when you actually look at the evidence. But um, the... Uh, you know it's a it 's a good hypothesis, but it doesn 't stand against the evidence anyway um, the uh, so they start really believing that well, because men are born horny and in need of sex more than women and and that uh, you know there 's just all this kind of rhetoric around that side of that kind of stuff anyway um, echo chamber yeah, it becomes very much of an echo chamber, and they feel defeated before they start. And the appealing element of the echo chamber is that it releases you from being responsible. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And it gives you something to be angry at. Because 34-year-old patron, the things that harmed you are your dad. Uh, your society has also probably harmed you, but probably not in the ways the incels have talked about. Um mm. And I don't really know the specifics of anyway. So you're asking like, so. But, but the bottom line is tough situation, and it's not your fault, and you didn't choose this. You didn't wake up in the morning and say, "This is what I wanted in my life." And you've really tried, and I really commend you for reaching out. It's a good sign, and, and, you're, in, and you're in therapy, and
1: not succumbing to the insult. I mean, he's aware of that. Yeah, that's out there, and I'm sure that there's times when um, that can hold some appeal because I don't know, I'm looking for somebody to blame. You know, like feminism or whatever it is, that's relieving. Right. I mean, there's a reason people do that, yeah, even if it's you know flawed logic. right, but this fellow is not succumbing to that and is writing in and asking a heartfelt question, really important uh, central heartfelt question at 34.:
0: Yeah, yeah, so it's good now, to answer your questions, uh, what do you do? How do you stop the cycle? It's hard to know, given that I don't know you, yeah. I, you know, I've worked with people for years trying to figure out how to do that with, with them. So you're in therapy. Um, I guess, you know, I, you say, you know, any advice other than go to therapy? Well, my main advice is not only go to therapy because you're in therapy, but is to use therapy well. Yeah, and that's what Bob was getting at is, okay, you're in therapy, but it sounds like you're, you have, you have the signs of someone who might be a little defended around really being vulnerable and and really asking for help and not being in a place of anger and bitterness, but being in a place of pain and expressing that that pain however you, however you do I don't you know we don't know you, but yeah the other thing I'll say is you know you say you want to scream and you say you want to yell and you're like well, that's not so healthy i 'm not quite so sure about that. If you're in therapy and you can just ask your therapist, could every time I show up, could I just scream for five minutes? Um, you know, it's unclear if that would help you or not. But I, I, I worry about that way of thinking. Is like I want to scream, but I can't. I want to scream, but I can't. And you know, screaming isn't harmful to anybody. It could uh-huh. scare other people, but yeah. that's their gig. You know, uh, for you, you're not, you're not, you're not harming anyone. That wouldn't um, that wouldn't work in in my office with the thin walls. Maybe into a pillow. Pillow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So if that's what you want to do, you know, find a place to do it. So some tips are, again, stay in therapy. You might want to increase the intensity of therapy. Mm. You're not really, you didn't give us any details, but it's possible that you need more therapy more often. Uh, You're suffering on a level that would justify that. It's because you're not like, struggling with everyday issues you're you're really struggling with something deep and existential to you to become suicidal over this for example it's oh, um yeah. it's quite intense and so you might you might need two sessions a week you might need more than one professional involved i'm not saying you need to be on meds or anything i'm just saying you know it may be more services to kind of give you more support we can't tell the level of engagement that he has or the therapist has right yeah maybe he's already doing that the other thing is, is watching your narratives. So one narrative is that it's society or that there's something wrong with you yeah. or that it's never going to get better. Yeah. And you, you got to watch those narratives because, um, you know, that can really harm things. You know what I think?
1: They're smoke screens. I mean, I'm not saying that a person wouldn't think these things. A lot of us have had these kind of thoughts. I'm saying that I I wonder if they um, end up being diversions from something deeper. Mm-hmm.
0: What do you think? Could be, yeah, yeah? for sure. The other thing is, is that there's a narrative in our society. And I think you have this patron that the only way to happiness is through a happy marriage. Mm -hmm. And that's not true. Mm -mm. There are so many people who that is not their path. Yeah. And not only do they find happiness through other sorts of relationships, but um, some people would love to go back in time and just be single the rest of their life and not have to put up with the spouse that they ended up yeah. with or something. You know, there's a lot of different paths in life and I find that the incel people seem to really privilege romance and, and yeah. sex as some kind of like the only Mecha. way, the only way to live. Yeah. Like, and to not have a romantic partner yeah. that you can have sex with all the time yeah. is some kind of um Hell, hellish landscape where life has no meaning right. they say you 're supposed to
1: have kids i don 't have any kids, yeah, I love being the funkel, the fun uncle <laughs> that's really great gig, right you learn stuff that the parents don't get to learn
0: well right, so the the parallel is society says you 're not anybody unless you have kids unless you have kids, and, <laughs> and what you're saying is is that you've had a wonderful life without oh, kids, yeah. and so so we don 't have to listen to society 's messages, so I, you know think about that narrative as well. Um, the other here is, is talking to people. I, I don't know how, how much you're talking to people, not incel people <laughs> talking to the 99.99% of people who aren't incels. Talk to people, G- uh, just get it off your chest. Uh, everyone is suffering. So, cause what my, the way you're the, one of the narratives you have is I don't want to go outside because everyone's enjoying their lives. Uh, I'm here to tell you everyone mm, is not enjoying their mm, life. Yeah. Uh, they might look like they're enjoying. I guarantee you, when you get on the bus and you're like, "Look at all these people enjoying their lives," half the people on the bus are looking at you, thinking you're enjoying your life. Yes. So, so get that out of your head. It, suffering is normal, my friend. Uh, take it from me as a therapist, as a human being, as someone who gets a lot of emails <laughs> uh, from suffering people who are living normal suffering lives. Mm. Suffering is is uh, is a constant, and so. Uh, so one talking to other people will help you get perspective around that it 's just like you 're not alone. The other thing is is to um get support and just get connection with other people i i 'm glad you 're in therapy, yeah, but I wonder how many people you're you really feel connected to having like you go to someone 's house say they 're a friend or romantic partner whatever you go to their, their house and it 's after work and you you just get a you get a relax you put on your comfy sweats and your comfy shirt and you have some snacks and you watch a show and you just veg out and maybe for half an hour, you don't talk. You're just, you're just watching, you're just watching a screen together. And then every once in a while you kind of start up a conversation. You talk about this or that, like, Oh, that reminds me of this thing. And, and maybe, if you're so inclined, you cuddle a little bit together. You just feel like you're with someone. You're not alone. You know, you're, you're together with someone. Um, it, if you don't have that in your life, I don't, I don't, if anyone out there, if you don't have that in life, I don't know how you get by in the world. Like, I, I don't know how you survive without that kind of human contact. You know, some people have a lot of pets. That's great. But, uh, we really do need a lot of human contact. That's, that's, that social energy around that. So, do you think that the, he needs a partner in order to? No, that's uh, what I'm saying. You're like saying. It could be a could be a friend, yeah. could be a sibling, mm-hmm. could be you know a coworker or whatever. It's just someone that you can relax with, yeah. Someone you can just you just be yourself, yeah. Someone that you know you can depend on that will that will be there, yeah. And uh, w- and we need that. And I find that a lot of men, mm. uh, particularly, will say you know well oh, i don't need anyone i i live I, I live on my own i have i get all my needs met i you know i go to the grocery store i got a good job i have my car i have my hot plate everything's working and what they don't think is like well i don't have any humans in my life like in a regular basis and that's you know that will mess you up if it, you take anyone that is super healthy and yeah. You isolate them from other humans. Oh. Uh, maybe they go to work. It's fine. Maybe they're on the bus. you're fine. But you isolate them from humans at home and a safe place, and weird stuff starts happening yeah. to your brain. Yeah, you start you start feeling the pain, but you don't know why you're feeling the pain, and then you start blaming all these things. Sure. Anyway, it's like it's like um, an invisible form of solitary confinement. Yeah, right. You actually go. You know, you have mental conditions that result from from being in the, you know, from solitary vacuum or something. The other thing is, is it's pretty clear that you've been traumatized Mm -hmm. and you're in a lot of pain. And so healing from that is important. Um, You are good at identifying those things. You're in therapy. So I don't know what you're focusing on in therapy, but maybe maybe really try to focus on that uh, more. Uh, It's one thing to talk about it in therapy, to be like, this happened to me. It's another thing to really talk about it. Yeah. And to really talk about, like, I'm suffering. Do you want to say anything more about, like, what the difference is? Yeah, well, so when someone comes into therapy they are so say someone comes into therapy and later on they realize for the past 2 years I haven't really been telling you the real thing even though I thought I was yeah. so let's get that scenario yeah. so you come into therapy you're going to the office mm-hmm. you're you're talking about your life yeah. you're not lying Nope, participating you're you're doing it you're answering the questions you know you're processing things you're you're gaining some awareness you're you're checking in the uh, therapist is responding but then something happens where you you go, it's you cross a threshold and then you're like, wow, now I'm really in therapy. That's usually for me. It's when someone either they, or I identify the realness of the suffering, the reality of the pain that someone is experiencing. Um, and it's in the room right here, right now. Yeah. I'm feeling it, man. Like, like, um, I might say something like uh, when I see it for the first time, because it's me too. Like, I'm like, this is good therapy. And then two years in, I'm like, Oh wait, I I think for the first time I am now seeing your pain. Yeah. Even though we've been talking about your pain. Yeah. I feel like right now I really feel it. I'm really, I'm really getting it right now. You are suffering all the time. When, when you grow up with mistreatment, you just get used to the suffering you get used to the pain yeah and it just becomes a part of your life thursday yeah and why bring it up why think about it it's not this doesn't help you to think about it when you're young and so you might know enough to go to therapy you might know enough to talk about how you were hurt but you're still uh not comfortable or ready safe enough To really, really be in that pain and to really just, you know, let it out. And when I see that as a therapist, I go, Oh, I'm glad we finally got here. Yeah. But it's horrible because then you gotta look at it. Yeah. And the client is not going it's not like all fun and games. Oh it's not after that. that. Yeah. It's there's it's more raw, it's more out in the open it implies a certain level of attitude you ha- or a level of behavior you have to. And, you know, like if I'm in this amount of pain, that means I have to like tell people I have to maybe even yell at my father. I have to do something about it. You don't have to, but, but it feels like that, you, you know, might be compelled to. Right. There's, there's things you got to do about it and, yeah. or it feels like that the way. And so it's so much easier just to talk about the pain rather than being with the That's pain. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, yeah. You could talk about it and think
1: you're doing, like, really good work. Yeah. I don't know how many sessions in 30 years of being a client (laughs) I have talked about it and thought, yeah, I'm really doing it, man. And, like, it's not really doing it.
0: Yeah. just moaning in my case. So if you, patron, are in that space, the place – and I know a lot of other listeners out there are also in that space as a client – the it's scary and maybe it takes some time, but you want to get to a place in therapy where you're an adult, but you're experiencing child level pain. If that makes any sense. Um, like old pain, like the part of the brain is stuck in time. I, uh, I'm not saying this right. Um, you are in session feeling feeling the pain you know yeah and it's not, it doesn't feel good it's not horrible but it's like yeah i'm i'm feeling this all the time this is happening all the time this shame is all the time i uh, every time i pass a mirror this is the shame yeah every time uh i come home from work and I'm trying to act like a normal person to my wife. That's the pain. Every time I come to you therapist and I'm trying to get you to think that I'm healthy or I I hope that you like me or I'm uh, avoiding the truth of the matter, the real truth of the matter, you know, that's where my pain is. And I'm helpless over, I don't know what to do about it. What do I do with that? Um, when you're safe enough and you get to that point, that's when therapy to some extent really begins. And the magic of therapy and relationships is that if you have a good enough therapist, they will uh, respond. It's not hard to respond well to that. I mean, the, the key is, is don't shame, don't judge, don't rush, don't solution, don't advice, just, uh, quote unquote, just listen, uh, be in the moment, be authentic, be like, wow, I see you. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. That sounds painful. I, I, I want to talk about this. Thank you for telling me. I want to talk about this all the time. What's going on? Mm-hmm. How does that feel? That space and that, because uh, c- when we were little, we didn't necessarily get that reaction from people. And that's what we needed. And to get that in therapy is is quite a thing. And so it's possible patron that uh you haven't got there maybe you have i don't know but um so let us know let us know how you're doing please and um i've already erased your name because you asked asked it to be anonymous so you're gonna have to remind me of exactly who you are when you if you do email good luck all right let's take a break when we get back let's answer one more what do you say Bob? sure All right, we're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast, do so now. Go to patreon.com. When you become a patron, you get access to all of our, arguably, our best episodes. We have hundreds of episodes that are only available to patrons, our deep dives on various different things. Some episodes with Bob are are only for patrons. And the other thing about becoming a patron is that it's really the main wind beneath our wings. It, It gives us the ability to spend time on this thing and to buy equipment for this thing. If we didn't have people on Patreon, this podcast would be once a month and I wouldn't have any time to prep for it and it would be just a silly episode. And if you want to hear those kinds of episodes, go back about six or seven years. <laughs> There's a good few years there where it was like that because I, I couldn't afford to spend the time on it. It's very time consuming. You know, a lot of people think like, Oh, when you're podcasting, the podcast is an hour. Yeah. You spent an hour on it. Ah, it's not the case. It's the case for you. I it's mean, the case for me. I just w- show up and yeah. look pretty. Uh, when you drive over here, it's arguably a little bit more time. But I spend hours and hours and yeah, hours I, Yeah, I know. Uh, prepping notes, yep. technology stuff, editing. It, for each hour, I remember uh, estimating a while back, for each hour of podcast, I do about 10 hours of other things. It's probably less than that now, but... How much less? Uh, five, eight, eight? Maybe five, yeah, five. or something like that. That's it's, a lot. Yeah, it's very time-consuming, and so in order for me to afford that time, I, uh, I, I need people to become patrons, So and a lot of people have. I'm a patron. Which is weird, uh, but uh, you don't have to be. That's the only way I can listen to the episodes. I can give you access. It's <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. We're happy patrons in my house. Uh, okay. Um. all right so this next one i've been wanting to talk with you for a while it's how to write treatment plans oh i'm not i'm not going to be good at this uh so uh the reality is now i haven't actually looked at these notes in a while so I'm, I'm gonna have to sort of parse my way through this so someone asked how do you write treatment plans so this is a very technical thing and if you're not a if you're not a clinician you're not going to care about the rest of this episode but we'll try to wrap up in the next 15 20 minutes A lot of novice therapists, and I think even experienced therapists, don't know how to write treatment plans. Why do you think that is, Bob? Um,
1: I think uh, when I was working in an agency, we got scant training in how to do it. I don't think that the people that were teaching us how to do it knew how to do it either, so everybody was just sort of just kind of fumbling along and futzing it up and whatever, doing what we could do just to keep the man off your back because that's all they really care about down there. So the treatment plans weren't actually really aimed at treatment. They were aimed at um, satisfying the bureaucracy. Right. And I think that um, when you're in prior practice, you don't have to. Right. So I have never learned to write a treatment plan.
0: Well, technically, you have to, it's, but you don't ever get checked on or the format of the treatment plan. Um, I mean, because when I say treatment plan, so maybe we should define. It. So when I say treatment plan, I mean like a, a conceptualization of what you're doing and why. Oh, oh, that. You know, that's the essence of a treatment plan. Well, sure. You come into the doctor's office, the physician, you complain of a very hurt arm. I always use this example. And the physician does a little manual or a visual check and thinks, oh, maybe you broke a bone. You know, how did this happen? Well, I fell off the roof. Mm -hmm. Okay, x-ray. You see the broken bone. Okay, you've assessed the problem and the physician does a treatment plan. We are going to uh set the bone put you in a cast it's going to be we're going to re, we're going to re x-ray in in 5 weeks you're going to, I'm going to prescribe this pain medication and I'm going to check in with you every month or something that's the treatment plan so when someone comes to us and they complain of marital problems or they complain of uh, existential dread then we very quickly in our head develop a treatment plan we don't just go like um well, I don't know why they're here or what I'm doing to help them. You have a conceptualization, either nonverbal or otherwise, about like, "Well, here's the problem, and here's how I'm going to help them." And it could and what I like to tell people is like, your treatment plan is legit if it says something like, "This person has low self-esteem, and I'm going to help them build their self-esteem by uh, normalizing their life and being a non-judgmental uh, listener. That's a treatment plan. It's not one that's going to pass for Medicaid in all likelihood, no. especially the way I worded it, but that's a absolutely legit evidence-based treatment plan that uh, these bureaucracies don't respect because they don't know what the fuck therapy is. Mm-hmm. They don't understand research. They don't understand evidence, and they privilege CBT, which is great, and there's evidence that it works for a lot of things, but there's evidence for a lot of things working for a lot of things. For some reason, there's only certain things that get... Privileged because of, I don't know, lobbying or the way it sort of is... CBT is easier to understand, I think. Yeah, probably, but I don't even think that the way that
1: people write about CBT in the agencies, at least when I worked there, had anything much to do with CBT. Yeah. What do you mean? Tell me more. I'm saying that, um, you know, blah, 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 we do CBT-oriented treatment plans. doesn't mean that we actually use CBT principles to write a treatment plan. We wrote shit to keep the bureaucracy satisfied that may not have anything to do with good cbt right but it it was worded like cbt it was CBT. worded
0: like cbt yeah. that's the best way to put it yeah. it was worded like cbt yeah. i'm going to provide these skills mm. to reduce this symptom mm. by 50% yeah right in the yeah. next 3 months what is that well it's fine it, but that can't be the only thing you know mm. like if someone has anxiety they have panic attack that you could say okay i'm going to provide this cbt treatment to reduce panic attacks By once a day to once a week. That's that's fine. Like a measurable goal. Got it. It's fine. But most people come into therapy, their goal doesn't really fit that clean process. So anyway, um, yeah, I agree that training is bad. And that's why treatment plan, most people don't write treatment plans very well. I've seen experienced, well-respected therapists uh, write a treatment plan. And it just it's it's awful. Some and a lot of people like yeah, they don't even do it anyway. So the components of a treatment plan are the following: one is you got to have name, date, etc. You got to have all the the demographic things. You know, some people leave that out. They'll they'll they'll, they'll leave the date off the treatment plan. It's like you got to know when you established it. <laughs> you know, it's it's important detail. And then. So that's just the the bare facts the second thing is you've got to have an assessment the assessment could be quite involved or it could be very little it could be very brief it could be the client reported low self esteem or the client seems to exhibit low self esteem or the client reported a marital conflict at home and that's it that's an assessment the assessment when we say assessment it just means you've assessed. The issue. You took a look. You took a look and you have an idea of what is happening. Now, that can be literally 20 pages or it could be one sentence like the client reported that they have conflict in their home typified by fighting with their spouse about money and this sort of thing, you know, maybe a little bit of detail. So it can be a lot of different things. Uh, the client isn't talking much in therapy and they're being forced into therapy by their parents. And uh, that's my assessment. You know, Um, the parents said that they come home late for curfew. You know, that that's an assessment. Okay. Then you have a treatment plan and that is, that could literally be as little as we're going to do weekly individual sessions for three months to talk about their self-esteem or talk about their service or to get them used to therapy. Okay. It doesn't have to be super complicated. It doesn't have to be, you know, but you need some statement in there. And what I find is that when I walk novice therapists through this, because they'll say, I don't know how to write a treatment plan. I don't, what am I supposed to say? And I just ask them, you know, just simple questions like, well, what's the problem? And they'll be like, uh, and it takes a while because, Again, there's not a lot of practice putting it into words. They've heard it. They get it in their head, but they don't have a lot of practice saying it. So, you know, we run through it enough times. They're like, okay, this is the problem. Okay. Um, How do you know that's a problem? Well, this, this, and this. Okay. So that's an assessment. Uh, How are you going to help them? Well, what do you mean? You know, there's this kind of panic. Like, uh, I don't don't know how to put it out in words. Okay. Well, what are you doing? What do you mean? What are you doing? I don't know are you meeting with them in an office? Yeah. Are you talking? Yeah. Well, then you're administering talk therapy. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't have to be more complicated than that. Jesus is coming. Look busy. <laughs> yeah. uh, Cause people think like your, your treatment plan has to be some sort of super technical thing, you know, to the average person viewing, they just want to see like, well, what are you doing? Well, what I'm doing is talk therapy. Oh, okay. So that that's the treatment you're providing family therapy. You're providing, you know, um, whatever, so it could be that little. It could be a little bit more detailed, like I'm going to use interpersonal therapy, or I'm going to use EFT for the couple therapy, or something. I'm going to talk about attachment, or something. You know, um, it could be a little bit more detailed. It Doesn't really have to be, depending on the context, but you know, that's what we're trying to go for. Um, the key there is not to get too micro. A lot of people in the treatment plants get a real micro. Like, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. That's objectives. Um, it's not the treatment plan. It's not the main kind of treatment statement. Then objectives, you can get more detailed, you know, two or three things in, in, in there. You can say, like, I'm going to, you know, improve self-esteem through positive self-talk. Pretty easy there. Um, now, you might not consider it improving self-esteem through positive self-talk, but that's the way you probably should word it in your, in your notes. Like for you, Bob, Um, With all your clients this week, you probably had at least some element of improving self-esteem through positive self-talk. Some kind of comment on that, right? I don't know if that's true. Well... Today's Monday, so... Okay. But you've probably had a lot of moments in the past month where... Sure. You improved self-esteem through positive self-talk. Like, oh, I think you're kind of beating yourself up there. Yes. Or... I want you to think about what you're saying to yourself right now right. in terms of the story you're telling right. yourself. Okay, there's a lot of ways to conceptualize that in a treatment plan, but one of the ways that is pretty easy to understand is improving self-esteem through positive self-talk. Right. And so sometimes people are doing things that can be worded very simply, but they think about it really complicatedly, and, and it, that doesn't really lend itself to treatment plans. Anyway, so getting kind of practice and have a repertoire of things I mean, one of the things, incidentally why I feel like I'm pretty good at treatment plans is, you know, I worked for the state for a long time with oh, through right, right, yeah. working choices, and ha- there was a lot of paperwork that would be reviewed by de- you know the state and courts and lots of different people, and so I I had to get and I did it so often, you know, that I eventually just I could just go, you know, just really fast, just, yeah, yeah, I, and I, it was always legit. I could say, okay and just review what I'm doing. I'd be like, okay, what's, how do you word that? You know, I think that's a skill that you have to do with practice makes perfect. Anyway, then you have any necessary referrals in there. And then you uh, indicate client approval. Somehow you have to indicate like, did the client approve? So in my notes, since I'm in private practice, I might say something like this, Um, you know, such and such client on this date. uh, It's usually the first session uh, they presented with me. They said that they are having problems in their marriage They don't know the direction of their life is going and they um, are kind of worried about parenting or something. So the treatment plan is I'm going to administer weekly individual therapy and and I'm going to use attachment oriented therapies, interpersonal therapies and cognitive behavioral therapies or something like that. And uh, I don't have a referral, so I don't mention that. And then I say and the client approved of the treatment plan. So that's all I write. That's that's what, three sentences or something? That's a treatment plan, you know? And that should be in your head with all your clients, and it should be documented either in that very brief form or in a more elaborate form. Um, it's, that's it. It's nothing fancy. It doesn't have to be super uh, detailed. It shouldn't be super detailed. Uh, it just has to say something like that. And um, I find that a lot of people worry that, like, well, if I put it on a paper, that means someone can scrutinize it, and I f- already feel like a fraud. So, you know, that kind of stuff. Anyway, what, what do Not you Not me. I never feel that way. Um, do you feel like a fraud because you don't feel like a fraud? <laughs> I don't know how to answer that. It might be true. <laughs> but uh, who's asking? So do you have any tips on how to write treatment plans based on your experience? Yeah, listen to this podcast. <laughs> any other tips? No. Um, Not a forte of mine. Not a forte? Mm. Why? I don't do this. Yeah. When yeah. was the last time you wrote a treatment plan, like a formal one? I don't know. Like years. back in the, CBC, yeah. uh, the agency days. Agency days, which would have been 20 years 20 ago. 20 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. But in your head, you have a treatment plan, right? You might tell your clients. Yeah, I have a sense of what I'm doing and why. Yeah. yeah. And you, you could write it down. I could write so it down. So you have a treatment plan. It's just not on paper. Not on anyway. paper. Um, so, some tips to people about treatment plans just to close this up. Don't be too wordy. Don't include information that would make the client upset in all your uh, uh, stuff. I mean, it's sort of complicated, but generally speaking, you don't want to do that. Uh, don't worry about using similar language with other treatment plans. It's okay to use the same exact sentences across different treatment plans because, you know, a physician doesn't have to. Uh, reword a treatment for you know uh, high blood pressure they don't have to write it in a unique way it's 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 a solid treatment for that thing now you don't want to have all your treatment plans across all your clients with the exact same wording because then it looks like you're not really putting effort into it Um, but if you have the same general issue then just use the same treatment plan Um, understand how to use the full process of intake assessment building an alliance you know doing the treatment plan following up it's not that hard but it's something that a lot of people again they just don't get practiced in it It, you know people start in this uh industry just so blinded with terror that they're just trying to survive and they don't really have a, a a lot of space to think okay what are the steps that i have to follow kind of formally to do this job and um so when you get to a comfortable place you want to do that also you want to occasionally revisit the treatment plan with your clients, particularly high risk clients. Um people who have suicidal ideation, homicidal ideation, they're volatile. Uh they have a tendency to sue their their therapist or there's some legal battle of some kind. You want to make sure that uh, you revisit it, make sure that every, you know everything's cool. And again, if you're not in need of a formal treatment plan, you can just have a conversation with people and um you know so i just want to review you know this is what you're working on and this is what we're doing how do you feel about that is that something that uh, you still want to continue you know you just want to get that feedback and obviously consult with an expert at the end um all right well honestly bob i thought you had more to say about tree implants i know i told you this is gonna be boring <laughs> i told you this weeks ago <laughs> oh you did yeah oh that's right you did <laughs> well so, what would you like to to end with here? About, about treatment plans? No, about uh, this episode in general or life? Well, or we're probably only the therapists therapist. listening to you at this point. So, what, what kind of therapy wisdom nugget do you have for clinicians out there? Enjoy your client. What do you mean?
1: Like, enjoy your client. This is a person who comes, they come to you, they sit with you, you have this really lovely golden chance to actually... Be with somebody to, to care about them, to practice, to have compassionate attitude, and to be interested and curious. And you get a chance to somebody's going to open up to you, probably, especially if you're if you're um, um, have that kind of attitude. Enjoy your client. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there, and please take care of yourself because you deserve it.